If you have your Bibles this morning, if you would open them to the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah, you're probably saying, is that even in the Bible? Uh, well, actually it is. It's in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the shortest books of the Old Testament. If you find the Psalms and Proverbs, keep going to your right. Go past Daniel. Go past Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then you'll find Obadiah. It's just before the book of Jonah. I'm going to try to find it as well. It's usually about one or two pages in most Bibles. It's only 21 verses. But don't let its size fool you. It has a very important message. I'll give you a few moments to find it. Book of Obadiah. During the time of the ancient Roman Empire, there was a city called Pompeii. Now, Pompeii was a very vibrant society. They built Pompeii just at the base of Mount Vesuvius, a mountain that towered 4,000 feet into the air. Uh, Pompeii was growing and vibrant. It had a burgeoning economy. People were buying and selling things in the marketplaces. Uh, People were enjoying fine wine with friends. They also uh, enjoyed the Roman baths, which were quite famous at the time. Uh, It was kind of a social thing to do. And as well, they would also just love to invite friends over and eat and enjoy their time. Everything seemed to be very tranquil and bliss in Pompeii. The only thing that seemed to disturb their lives was these kind of pesky and persistent earthquakes. Uh, They would kind of rock and rattle their buildings and their homes, but other than that, it seemed fine. That is until a fateful day in the August of 79 AD. What the residents of Pompeii didn't realize was their city was built near this lofty Mount Vesuvius, which was actually an active volcano. And their homes were built on a vast sea of molten lava. And these pesky, persistent earthquakes were really signals that this volcano was about to erupt. And then on August the 29th, 79 A.D., Mount Vesuvius erupted. The blast was so intense that lava, ash, and pyroclastic material was spewed 20 miles into the air. And Pompeii, blissfully not knowing what was happening, was completely destroyed. Now today, we're going to look at the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah is an earthquake that is intended to rattle our lives It was given to us to wake us up to something that we may not even realize can completely destroy us. So let's turn our attention to the book of Obadiah. We're going to kind of move first by first and see what this message from God, what this message that God has for us through Obadiah to teach us. Okay, let's look in verse one. It says the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. So let's stop right there. First, we notice that Obadiah is a vision that God had given to Obadiah to teach us. God has basically opened up our understanding of this particular people called the Edomites, which we'll look at a little bit later. We'll understand a little bit more about them. But God is able to see things that we naturally are unable to see. We are naturally blind to things that the Bible opens our eyes so that we can see very clearly. That's the reason why we studied the Bible in the first place, is to see things we wouldn't naturally see. And here, we're going to be told about this crucial problem that the Edomites had. Now, the Edomites didn't build their homes on a vast sea of molten lava, but they actually built their hearts uh, on this kind of uh, difficulty that was in their hearts. It was this multi- you can think of it as the molten lava of the heart. 
It was seeped within their hearts to a certain degree. They didn't even realize it. But we'll assume that the lives of the Edomites was about to erupt. We want to see what this problem was in the hearts of the Edomites. So let's look here further on. It says, This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. We see at the beginning here that God is about to say how the Edomites are going to be destroyed. And later on, we're going to see the reasons why they were destroyed. Look in verse 2. He says, See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. We see that there's a bad omen here for Edom. They're about to be destroyed. Verse 3, it says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? So we see that the Edomites' hearts were filled with pride. We know that the Edomites were actually proud about three things. One of them was the place where they lived. The Edomites actually lived uh, up in these high cliffs of these rocks. Um, If you've ever seen the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, at the very end of the movie, where they're they're riding their horses through these um, treacherous gorges and and high cliffs, this is actually the, the, uh, the actual place where the Edomites lived at the time. And they became very prideful of their place. And the reason why is because of their, the city was high up on the rock, it would have been very difficult for any invading army to take them down. In fact, uh, the way that they made it to their high cliff was the way they didn't scale the cliffside, but there was this about a two-mile stretch of road. It was very narrow and had just deep, dark gorges on each side. And that's how they make it up to their city. So any invading army that attempt to take over Edom, uh, their city, would easily be picked off because the person who's in the high position is in the best tactical position militarily. And the Edomites knew this. So their hearts become really filled with pride in thinking that there's no, there's no one on earth who can take us down to the ground. So we see here that pride had begun to deceive them, as it says there in verse 2. That their own pride of their strengths that they had really made them blind about their own weakness. Now, in fact, that's actually what pride is. Pride is a weakness because of the fact that we're unable to see our own weaknesses. Pride is the overvaluation of ourselves. We think we're stronger or better than we actually are. And so when a person becomes filled with pride, they simply become blind to the ways that they can be destroyed. And that's actually what happened with Edom here. They filled their hearts with pride so much that it says the latter part of verse uh, 3 there, who can bring me down to the ground? Let's see what God responds in verse 4. God says, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. God says, Your heart has been so filled with pride, you're not going to see your destruction that's about to to come. The idea of the eagle soaring into the sky is kind of a metaphor for uh, the Edomites' dwelling place. He also said, You make your nest among the stars, and it says, from your heights that you're about to fall. Let's look what happens next in verse 5. God says, if thieves came to you, oh, what is that? He says, if, robber, if, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? So he kind of asked these series of rhetorical questions saying, if robbers were to come to you, now, robbers simply just take what is valuable to the robber, right? But here he's saying, 
you know, that's what the robber would do. But when I come, I'm going to do much more than that. If grape pickers were to, to glean the fields, they usually just take enough that helps them economically. He says, but oh, when I come, I'm going to take it all. Look in um, uh, verse 6. He says, but oh, how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures will be pillaged. So God says the destruction of these, these Edomites, these people who live in the rocks, is going to be... Um, wash it and wax it, uh, took great care of it. He would detail the inside and always kept it finely tuned. So when you had that crank of a five-liter engine, you'd hear the soft roar of it. He was proud of this thing. And one day he was leaving his apartment complex, going to find his uh, Mustang to get in it and drive to work. And uh, he couldn't remember where he parked it. He thought he was there, thought he was here. And he kind of found that someone had actually stolen his Mustang. He was quite distraught. So he called it to police. And uh, the police uh, took a couple days, but they finally tracked it down. And they said, well, I don't think you're going to uh, like what's the result of it. Insurance came in, adjusted, and decided that it was just completely ruined. He's going to have to replace it. And so he was very, very heartbroken. And, but the insurance company said, you know, you can go down to the impound lot. And you kind of take whatever is valuable in there and, and bring it home. So he said when he went down to the impound lot, he was so upset and just hurt inside because of this beautiful Mustang he had before was just completely, I mean, ragged out. The, uh, the tires were blown out. It had scratches all over it. And he said he just kind of, with the downcast heart, was kind of looking at the whole thing. So he decided to open up the door and get in and see if there was anything of value left. And uh, one of the things he used to do whenever uh, guys would get into his car, they would always try to light a cigarette, and he would chase them away. And, uh, and so this particular day, when he got into the car, he opened up the ashtray, and he noticed there was two cigarette butts in the ashtray that someone had smoked in his Mustang. He said that was the worst part of it all. Well, here in, in, in the book of Obadiah, it says the Edomites are not going to be simply, the things that are valuable going to be taken. It's going to be everything that the Edomites themselves consider valuable. It was all going to be destroyed. Look in verse 7. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. So he says here that this invading army that's going to come in and destroy the Edomites is not going to be one that, that scales the cliffs, or walks along this narrow uh, gorge with the, uh, um, uh, the treachery on both sides, but actually be their very friends, the ones that would invite into their homes to eat with them. In the Middle East, eating a meal with someone is a symbol of friendship. And these would be the very people who were going to take down the Edomites. Let's look in verse 8. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, will I, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. I mentioned earlier that there were three things the Edomites were proud of. One was their geographic position, high in the cliffs. The other two was actually their wise men. These were the men who had great understanding, who's able to uh, strategize and know exactly what the Edomites should do. He says, those wise men are going to be destroyed. The other, the third thing they were proud of was their great warriors, courageous in heart. And he says that your warriors will be terrified. So we see right here, just through these first nine verses, that the Edomites are going to be completely wiped out. Now, why would God allow someone to be this thoroughly destroyed? What was it about the Edomites 
that would allow for their destruction. Now, oftentimes, we, we read about uh, the Old Testament, or we hear about this great destruction, we think, man, God is just, I mean, really wrathful here. But we have to realize that God is extremely just. And what, whatever it is that a person does, uh, the consequence of the action is just as proportional. So what we need to do this morning is look at carefully what it is that the Edomites did that would allow them to be destroyed this so thoroughly. And we're going to begin to see this in verse 10, as he's going to reveal to us what it was, uh, what this molten lava of the heart that the Edomites had. Let's look at verse 10. He says, all this is going to be, is going to be coming because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. So we see in verse 10 our first clue that the Edomites were perpetrator of some sort of violence. Let's look at 11 and 12, kind of get a better picture of what this violence was. 11, on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Verse 12, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his, in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So the picture we begin to see here in verse 10 and 11, it's not that the Edomites actually did something. It's not because of an action that the Edomites were going to be destroyed, but it was because of an attitude, an attitude. Verse 11, it says the reason why they're going to be destroyed is because they were aloof when their brother was being destroyed. Now let's talk a little bit about the two nations here we're going to see, we see in this text. One is Edom. We already talked about them. They live in the clefts of the rock. The other is Israel, also called in this text, kind of in this poetic style, as Joseph or Jacob. And so we're going to see there's this relation between Edom and Israel. And the Edomites were aloof to this kind of terrorized destruction that had happened to Israel. Now, Israel had lived, lived and occupied the city of Jerusalem. And God had allowed the, this large nation called the Babylonians to come in and basically uh, capture and, and, uh, um, and overthrow Israel. And the way this battle took place was extremely horrific. Uh, back in this time, the main form of warfare was siege warfare, that people would run from a fleeing army, they would uh, put themselves behind these walls of a city, and they'd basically try to escape from this imposing army. The Babylonians really swept down across, across the earth with this vast army, and they encircled Jerusalem, and Jerusalem had a wall around it. So the people of Israel kind of held themselves up in the city, while this large army was just kind of um, uh, waiting for them to come out of the city. And usually the people wouldn't come out, obviously, because this vast army is around them. So the Babylonians or whoever the invading army, the sieging army, would wait. And they would wait. And they would wait. Sometimes one year. Sometimes two years. Sometimes three years. And basically they would wait until all the food in the city had been consumed or plague had come rampant within there. And so it was just an extremely detestable way of doing warfare. But that was the only way to get them out of this city. And so that's exactly what the Babylonians did. And what happened in the third year that the Babylonians had besieged Jerusalem is that the, uh, Israel actually decided, you know, we're starving here. There's nothing else we can do. We've got to take our chances and try to escape through the Babylonian lines. And so what they did is actually began to destroy the parts of the wall in the night when the Babylonians are hoping were asleep. You know, they've been waiting for three years, looking for the opportunity. 
and they began to basically just try to make their way out of the, make their way out of the city through the Babylonian lines and just basically run for their lives. And uh, of course, the Babylonians, you know, knew what was going on, and they, they ended up invading the city and taking their wealth and taking captives. And so it's an extremely horrific scene. But what is most important here in our text is what the Edomites' response to this was. We see in verse 11 that they were aloof, that they saw their brother, uh, which we'll talk a bit about more, that both the Edomites and Israel were both ancestrally related, so they were family, that for their own brothers, it talks about in verse 10 and in verse 11, um, that they just simply uh, looked away from it. And so what we see here is that their attitude was one of contempt. That's actually what the molten lava of the heart that was going to destroy the Edomites was contempt. And what we're going to see here, we're going to look first in verse 11 here and on and see what these five deadly features of contempt that would allow the Edomites to be destroyed. It was not simply that God was going to judge the Edomites, but this molten lava was going to actually even begin to destroy their lives as well. So verse 11, we see the very first one is their aloofness to the Israelites that they kind of turn their back on them. In the Hebrew, the word aloof there actually means to be opposite of. It's the idea that the Edomites were actually physically present, observing what was going on, but they were emotionally distant. They were disconnected to their brother's own plight and what was going on. Um, and so in this, uh, with this emotional distance, so we see in this aloofness, we see this first emotional distance of the Edomites. So one of the attitudes of contempt is this emotional distance. First, let me define a bit about contempt, and we're going to look at it a little more clearly. Contempt is an attitude that regards someone as less valuable or inferior. It's kind of looking down on someone. The intent and the effect of contempt, the reason why we have contempt for someone is we intend to exclude them push them away in, in our, from a relationship with us. So we begin to devalue them or degrade them and attempt to exclude them and push them away. And we see the first feature of contempt here is this aloofness. Uh, if we were to put this in modern terms, we'd say that the Edomites had turned a cold shoulder to Israel. They were there and saw them, but they did not regard them. When we turn the cold shoulder to someone, it's the idea of saying that you are unworthy of my attention or concern that you are so much less value that it's not even worth me to pay attention to you. And this is what the Edomites were doing to Israel. They were turning the cold shoulder. Now, contempt is an extremely cruel attitude to have, and it's very violent as well. matter of fact, Jesus in the New Testament singles it out as the single worst attitude that we can ever have for someone is contempt. And he gives it the highest um, a judgment of any other in his Sermon on the Mount. And one of the reasons why contempt is so cruel is this, is that God has made us to be in relationship, to be together. God has made us to be in community and to be as one. We know theologically that God is triune, that there are three persons in the Trinity, and they are united as one. And since we have been made in the image of God, that we also should be united as well. In the New Testament, Jesus prays in his prayer that we should be one as Jesus and the Father are one. That he has designed us to live together and to be in community. That he, God wants us to belong. 
And so he's given each of us a deep desire to belong, to belong and to be a part. And what contempt does is it spits on this deepest need to belong. And contempt divides us and says, I don't want you to be a part or in, a relation, in relation to me. And so it forces someone away uh, through the way, by way of degrading them or devaluing them. So contempt is an extremely cruel and a violent attitude. Well, let's see another feature of contempt here in verse 12. He says that you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune. Uh, so we'll stop there. So the, first, the next deadly feature, the second one we see here, is this contempt wasn't simply for a mortal enemy of the Edomites, but it was someone who was, who was family, who was someone who they should belong and should love. And this deadly feature is the fact that contempt, this attitude that regards someone as inferior in order to kind of exclude them, is something that we can actually have for someone that we love. That contempt can be intertwined with the attitude of love. And here he's saying that you should, have, uh, you should not have contempt. You should not be looking down on your brother. Now, contempt in relation or family relations can come from many different ways. Uh, we can simply look down on an inferior, what we perceive to be an inferior quality of the mate or a father or mother or brother or sister, and we can slowly kind of begin to despise that part of them. Maybe it's a characteristic or quality. Maybe it's something they do. Uh, when I was in, uh, working on my graduate degree, uh, there were different students in my program, and they would work very, very hard on their, in their studies. And uh, it was quite interesting to find that some of the wives of these men who were working on their degrees slowly began to build up this resentment to their husband's work because of how much time and effort it would take for them. And they slowly began to despise it, and they would basically be able to be in the, hold their husband in contempt um, for this work that they were devoting themselves to. And so contempt can come in many surprising ways. One of the main ways contempt comes is from conflict within families. Uh, whether it's parent to child or brother and sister, when this conflict arises and we have these disagreements, it often leads to first anger and then contempt. We begin to degrade or devalue a person's judgment or their ability to, to make decisions or begin to de- degrade them themselves because the way to try to uh, work through this conflict, uh, the, the bad way, is to hold someone in contempt. And so we see here that they should not have been holding this tight family member with this, um, this uh, terrible attitude of contempt. So let's look further on. The latter part of 12, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. And it says, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So here in the latter part of 12, we see this idea that the Edomites were actually rejoicing over their brother because of the destruction. As they watched this invading army and this assault take place, they simply begin, their hearts welled up with contempt and they begin to boast about it. In Psalms 137.7, it says that uh, the Edomites were yelling, tear it down, tear it down to the foundations, rip apart Jerusalem, is what was in their hearts. The word boast here actually means to make your mouth large. And they were boasting and their contempt was beginning to be expressed with their mouth. Now, we typically don't call for people's destruction in our own life, but our, we can hold people intent by using our mouth and our language in certain ways. One way is through name-calling. When we call people names, we're kind of equating them with uh, this name that is less valuable. 
We can use names like jerk and stupid. And by using these, we're saying that this person that I'm pointing out is inferior or have, has, is, uh, is worthless in some way. Another way that we express contempt is through profanity and filthy language. Oftentimes when people become Christians, they wonder, you know, what is so wrong about profanity or filthy language? But the problem with profanity and filthy language is it's always an expression of contempt. A person who uses them has contempt in their heart. And that's often why profanity invokes filth references to things that are less valuable in our society. We're saying that this person or what they're doing is equated with this, this despised and contemptuous thing. And we're expressing contempt in our heart through filthy language. So that's why filthy language and name-calling should never be on our lips because of an indication of what's in our heart. Let's look on and see what the other features here. Verse 13. Thirteen says, You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. So here in verse 13, it appears that they weren't simply looking down on them, but rushing through their gates and seizing their wealth. But in fact, this is kind of a carry-on from verse 11. Let's just kind of look briefly back at verse 11. You'll notice that was when the Edomites stood aloof while people were invading the city, seizing the wealth, taking captives. And what it says there in 11 is that the contemptuous attitude of the Edomites was just like this action of seizing the wealth, bursting through the gates, and taking captives. The violent attitude of the Edomites is equated with the violent actions of these Babylonians. That the attitude itself is just as real and violent as these actions. And verse 13 takes the conclusion of verse 11 and puts it in verse 13. And it equates them, it treats Edom as if they had actually done them because of this violence in their heart. So what we learn from verse 13 here is that God regards violent attitudes as being just as real as violent actions. And repeat that. God regards violent attitudes of the heart as just as real as violent actions. You see, the cruelty of contempt is so great that God will also bring it to judgment as well, regardless of the actions that result from it. Now, typically, we don't think of attitudes as being that bad. That's one reasons why a lot of people look at this judgment on Edomites and they think, how extreme because of an attitude in their heart? But attitudes are actually just as real as actions. But one of the reasons why we think attitudes really don't matter is because we can hide, at times, our attitudes from other people. Uh, people can't really see our attitudes. They can see our actions, but not our attitudes. Matter of fact, this morning, as I look across here and I can look into each of your eyes and I can gaze very intently and carefully and scrutinize each and every one of you, I can't see your attitude. I might be able to see your actions, but not your attitude. But God sees everything. That God sees every heart here, and he knows the deepest, deepest parts of it. And he knows your attitude. And God sees your attitude with the same crystal clarity as he sees your actions. And God says here that I'm going to bring those attitudes to judgment as well. But it's not simply that God is going to bring to judgment attitudes of the heart, 
But God has made us for community to belong, and their own attitudes can be able to undermine and destroy us from within. For our hearts were never designed to have contempt for other people. But because of this attitude of contempt in our hearts, it's like the molten lava that begins to destroy and eat from the inside out. That we will ultimately begin to destroy our own lives if we allow contempt to reside in it. And that's what we see in verse 13. Look in verse 14. He says that you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So 14 is where we begin to see the very first actions of the Edomites. Uh, 11, 12, and 13, we see this emphasis on their attitude. In 14, we begin to see the actions. And what we see here is that as the Babylonian army had surrounded Jerusalem, people began to break out, remember, and attempt to flee. Some actually did make it past the Babylonians. And you can kind of visualize these emaciated bodies having been eating for days and possibly a year. Um, plague had riddled the city. And so these kind of just, uh, these, these just, Pitiful figures are coming out from the city. And so what was Edom's role here? They begin to cut them down. They took the fugitives and they would either kill them or they capture them just to turn them over to the Babylonians. We saw the contempt in their heart, the, the way that they viewed Israel as basically worthless, their own brother, spilled over into this deplorable action. The, the attitude of contempt will ultimately spill over into actions in our life. And that's what we see here. Uh, for the Edomites. Now, in verse 15 and following, we're going to kind of see the results of this contempt and these actions by the Edomites. It says, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. This is the idea that uh, if you have contempt in your own heart, uh, you will ultimately be devalued yourself. It's kind of interesting in verse 2 there that the way that God explains what is going to happen to the Edomites is that he says that you'll be small and despised. We know with contempt, it's the idea that, that someone is being devalued, that we consider them to be less valuable than they actually are. And so we see the very actions of the Edomites is going to be returned upon themselves, that they also be small and despised, the way they had despised Israel. Let's look in the next verse, 16. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. In this poetic style, Obadiah says that just as you drank wine and rejoiced over Israel's destruction, then he uses another picture. It's the symbol of the cup of wrath, which God is going to give to the Edomites. Uh, the way that you drank wine to rejoice over them, you're going to be drinking this, this wrath. It's quite graphic. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. So here essentially it says that the house of Israel, we saw uh, Jacob and Joseph, also names of Israel, they're going to be a fire. Edomites will be stubble and they'll be consumed. It's the idea that the victim, the person who is a victim of content, will ultimately be the victor. Verse 19, we see the same idea. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. 20, this company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan 
will possess the land as far as the Zarephath, as exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sephard will possess the towns of the Negev. 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This morning we won't go through all these geographic locations and cities, but he's basically saying is that Israel, even though they are destroyed by the Babylonians, will ultimately have their land back and they'll be restored. And they will ultimately be, uh, occupy the place of Esau, uh, the people who held them in contempt. When I was living in uh, England, we, one of the interesting things we were able to do is to visit a lot of the different cathedrals that were there. One of the most interesting cathedrals that we actually visited was a place called Salisbury Cathedral. When you approach Salisbury Cathedral from within the city, the, the city uh, roads are very narrow. It was built before the times of cars. So you have these very tall uh, buildings around you, so you can't see the cathedral. You can be very close to it, but actually can't see it as you walk down these kind of narrow uh, passageways and, and go between the buildings. But as you exit the buildings and you enter the courtyard where Salisbury Cathedral is, you see this, uh, this very tall, glorious structure, which is Salisbury Cathedral. It was built to glorify God and his magnitude. Because Salisbury Cathedral is actually the tallest, has the tallest spire in all of Great Britain. It measures over 400 feet tall. And as you approach this, um, this building, there's this kind of a stunning feeling you have because of its height and its beauty. And Salisbury Cathedral was built over several centuries. In fact, the person, people who originally built Salisbury Cathedral knew they were going to be building this glorious structure and it's going to be very tall. And so they decided to have, get the best materials possible to build the cathedral. And so what they did is they didn't use stones that were quarried right next to the cathedral, but they traveled miles away and hauled these large and massive stones to be built into Salisbury. Uh, and this is, of course, time before cars, and so they either had to use ox carts and whatever they could, so they uh, used a lot of effort to bring these good quality materials to build the cathedral. They began to put stone on top of stone on top of stone. Um, they began to build the tower, and then they also began to build the spire as well. As a matter of fact, in the top of the spire is still the ancient, um, the medieval uh, crane that's actually used to loft these massive stones up to the very top of the tower. Now, as these stones begin to be built within the tower, the stones themselves are extremely heavy. And in fact, the weight of the cathedral is immense. And you wouldn't think that stone could actually bend, but if you go into Salisbury Cathedral and you look straight down the nave, right at these four pillars that hold the tower, the stone itself is actually curved. And they have to monitor it very carefully so in case Salisbury Cathedral you know, ever began to shift and be able to implode and, and, and fall in on itself. But the only way they could ever build this glorious structure is with this good quality stone. Now, our lives are in some ways like Salisbury Cathedral. They are built as glorious monuments to God. And what we need to do is to build our lives with good quality materials that will extend the excruciating weight of a glorious monument. Because, you know, even the best materials bend under, under the weight of a glorious monument. And if we allow our lives to be built with attitudes like contempt and these other things, it will eventually be destroyed and implode. But if we build our lives on good attitudes, good qualities, then our lives will truly be able to glorify God and to praise him.